there, and welcome to Feed That Nation. and I'm a graduate student, I'm a future registered dietitian, I'm a health educator, a content creator, and a self-proclaimed mac and cheese expert. I create content here on Feed That Nation all about college life, college health, and college wellness with the goal of helping you, my fellow college students, to be more successful, more confident, and more healthy in your student journey. I upload podcast episodes right here to YouTube and to your favorite podcast listening platforms every Wednesday, and I upload YouTube videos on Saturdays. Before we begin today's episode, please go ahead and subscribe to me on YouTube or subscribe to me on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Don't forget to go follow me on Instagram. I am at FeedThatNation and go check out my blog, FeedThatNation.com. Also, go ahead and check out my affiliate partner, Coconut Whisk. Coconut Whisk is a vegan, gluten-free, and allergy-friendly baking mix company based right here in Minnesota. They have incredible products. They have an incredible mission. They are run by incredible people. I cannot say enough good things about Coconut Whisk, including how much I love their products. I have a package of their vegan chocolate chip cookie mix waiting for me, and I cannot wait to dive into it. I have had them before, and they are so good, I've actually made them and given them to my neighbors. So if that doesn't say how much I love Coconut Whisk, I believe that you should probably just go listen to every other episode since I started partnering with them because I say good things about them all the time. If you can't wait to try Coconut Whisk, go ahead and check them out on CoconutWhisk.com. And if you choose to buy something, use my coupon code FeedThatNation. If you do, you get 15% off your order and I receive a small commission. So truly, everybody wins in this scenario. Go check out Coconut Whisk. So if you guys are watching me on YouTube, you can probably see I'm not wearing any makeup. My hair is much longer than I prefer it. I'm actually getting my hair cut today, later today. And I'm just like, I'm just living right now. I had a migraine last night, so I'm definitely in the post-drome migraine hangover phase right now. Um, Tons of stiff muscles, a lot of fatigue. But I really wanted to get this episode out to you guys because I think this is a topic that I can't believe I've never covered on Feed That Nation before. Today we're going to be talking about finding a work-life balance and achieving work-life balance and striving for work-life balance as a college student. And this is such a tough topic, and it's tough not only because college students have this weird conglomeration of personal life and social life and extracurriculars and hobbies and classwork and projects related to class and work and internships, and there's just so many different moving parts of the typical college student life. But also during the pandemic, it can be even more challenging to find work-life balance when a lot of time people are at home more often. And so the spot where you would normally do schoolwork is also your Netflix watching spot. And it's also the spot where you are researching that foreign language that you really want to learn. And it's also the spot where you answer your emails. And it's tough. Work-life balance is tough. And I want us to start the podcast by saying that achieving work-life balance is a work in progress always. There isn't going to be a moment when you just feel like you've completely mastered it. You might have a week or so, maybe two weeks, three weeks, where you're just like, wow, I really got this. But it's an ongoing process to continually learn when to say yes, when to say no, when to rest, when to step up more, lean in more into your projects. That's how I want to start today is by saying that there is no one right answer. There is no perfect answer to work-life balance. 
I guess the second thing I want to dive into before we actually get into talking about work-life balance is something called the spoon theory. So spoon theory is a metaphor that is commonly used in the chronic illness and disability community. It was coined in 2003 by a woman whose name is Christine... I'm blanking on the last name. I will pop it on the screen right here so you guys know who this person is. But Christine was someone with lupus who was trying to explain to a friend of hers who did not have lupus what it's like living with a chronic illness. And I'll get into spoon theory in a second, but first I want to say that I'm introducing you guys to the concept of spoon theory not to take away from the incredible value that it has to the disability community and to the mental illness community and to the chronic illness community, but I think spoon theory is one of the most clear and concise ways of talking about how much time and energy it takes to live your life whether or not you have a disability, whether or not you have a chronic illness or you have mental illness, Spoon Theory just provides this really tangible way of understanding the effort that we put into living life. That being said, Spoon Theory basically sums up all of the tasks and all of the energy that you need to put forth in the day into spoons. You start the day with a handful of spoons and each task that you have to complete throughout the day takes a different number of spoons. So getting out of bed t might take one spoon. Taking a shower might take two spoons. You know, getting dressed and putting on makeup might take two spoons. Driving yourself somewhere might take a spoon. Working might take four or five spoons at least. And once you're out of spoons, you're out of spoons. And I love using the spoon theory as a way to sort of describe how much energy and how much bandwidth we have to give different tasks in any one day because once you're out of spoons you can borrow from the next day but that means the next day you're not going to have as many spoons and some tasks I've found and I use this metaphor with my husband all the time you know some tasks if I have to do them by myself they're going to take like three or four spoons from me but if I do them with my husband they might only take one spoon from each of us and in the chronic illness and disability space it's sort of used to describe how much energy tasks can take when you have a disability or a chronic illness compared to if you are healthy and able-bodied. For example, an able-bodied person might be able to cook and eat a meal and it would only take one spoon, but someone in the disability or chronic illness community, it might take one spoon to decide what to cook and another spoon to actually cook the meal and then another spoon to eat and another spoon to clean up afterwards. That's four spoons. That's a lot of spoons. And I'll be done talking about spoons in just a minute, I promise. But I want to make it clear that every college student has a certain number of spoons in any given day. And this number of spoons is not static. You know, it changes depending on how much sleep we got the night before. It changes depending on what is going on in the world around us. I think that with the pandemic and with COVID, all of us have fewer spoons than we used to. And of course, there's also trauma-based spoon loss you know, things like the Derek Chauvin trial going on here in Minneapolis that uses up a lot of spoons, a lot of emotional spoons. Achieving work-life balance is figuring out how to get the things done that you need to get done and then figure out where can you get things done that you want to get done, but also leaving room for rest and leaving room for not constantly running out of spoons and running out of spoons and running out of spoons. Whether or not you choose to use spoons to describe your 
life and your energy and finding that balance for you is totally up to you. But I also do want to say that Spoon Theory presents us with this really concrete way of saying you only have so much time and so much emotional energy in you in a day. And so there are a couple of things that I really, really want to make clear, and they come in the form of sentences that you can say out loud to yourself. And you can write these down, you can put them on sticky notes, you can internalize them, you can use them as affirmations, whatever you need to do. But the first of these sentences is, I cannot do everything all the time, and that is okay. The second sentence is, the craziness of my Google Calendar is not indicative of my success. Busyness is not indicative of success. Being busy does not mean that you are successful. And you guys know when I talk about success here on Feed That Nation, I'm not talking about objective, measurable success. I'm talking about what feels successful to you, where you succeed to you in your own life. And so with those two affirmations, I'm encouraging you to give yourself permission to be okay with not doing everything all the time and to understand that being busy doesn't necessarily mean you're successful. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, I also want to talk about physical time commitments versus emotional time commitments. And pretty much every task, every activity, every job, every course you have is going to have both physical time commitment and emotional time commitment attached to it. And what I mean by physical time is the time you actually spend physically doing a task. So whether you're in class or doing homework, when you're at your job, when you're at a meeting or in a meeting, when you are doing things like working out, when you are even watching Netflix, that is physical time. That is a physical time that you've committed to a task. But there's also emotional time commitments. And what I mean by this is the amount of time you spend thinking about or reflecting on or stressing about an activity or a task that you have on your plate. And this plays out for me personally in anxiety. You know, the amount of time I spend being anxious about or thinking about or, you know, laying awake at night reflecting on. And that's emotional time. And that can be just as tiring, if not even more physically tiring and taxing than spending physical time on a task. And I think a lot of college students also don't necessarily count this time when the thinking, ruminating, reflecting is related to physical time. Because let's say that you have an on-campus job that you work 10 hours a week. But maybe you also receive emails related to that job in your off time and you spend a lot of time thinking about how to respond to those emails or how to address the problems brought up in those emails. And whether or not you're physically doing work at the time that you are thinking about those emails and thinking about how to respond, you're using your emotional time to reflect on it and that can be really physically taxing. Something that's really worked for me when it has come to reducing my emotional time commitment to certain tasks is I took my school email off of my phone and I turned off notifications for most non-essential apps on my phone because I realized that early on in the pandemic when I had my school email on my phone, I didn't have any real emotional separation from when I was doing school when I was being a student and when I was not. 
And so, you know, the chair I used to always sit in in the kitchen, that was my homework spot and my Netflix spot and my podcasting spot and the spot I would sit to play on my phone while I was cooking dinner. And all of that just became so confusing and tangled up in my mind. And I needed that physical separation to create less emotional time commitment. So now I really only check my email during business hours during the week and then once or twice on the weekends. And that has really helped me to create separation and reduce the emotional burden. Something else that's really worked for me, and actually this is something I do with Feed That Nation more often than anything else, is when I'm sending emails related to Feed That Nation to you know future podcast guests or connecting with people, I have a set of email templates that I use so that I'm not every single time I want to send an email taking the time to reinvent the wheel and rewrite that email from scratch. A lot of time what I'm doing is I'm copy and pasting my email template and then I'm changing the names, changing the dates, and just tweaking it rather than having to write up every single thing by hand from scratch. So if you're somebody that sends a lot of similar emails, I think this is a great way to reduce your emotional burden because you're not having to think so hard about what to say in these emails. Something else I want to address in this work-life balance episode is downtime. And the amount of downtime that you need to be at your most successful, relatively speaking successful, the most comfortable, the most happy, is completely individualized to you. The amount of downtime that you need yourself can be and often is very different than the amount of downtime that your friends need or your coworkers need or your professors need. And I think we need to stop as a whole comparing the amount of downtime that we feel we need to be happy and comfortable and successful to the amount of downtime that it looks like other people have. And so I'd really encourage you think about how much downtime in minutes or hours or at what points of the day Do you need to be at your best? You know, maybe this is your 30 minutes of playing on your phone in the morning before you get up. Maybe this is your 45 minute workout and then your 30 minutes afterward to shower and get dressed. You know, maybe it's your hour of Netflix at the end of the day that you watch to wind down. And think about, you know, which of these is non-negotiable? Which of these can you skip for a day or two and be okay? Which of these are optional in busy weeks you don't get a whole lot of time for, but it's still okay? And when you're planning out your schedule and when you're thinking about if you can or if you should commit to new tasks or new projects or new activities, don't forget to include downtime in your commitments because that's a commitment you've made to yourself. That's a self-care commitment. That is a true downtime, you time commitment. And in the grand scheme of things, I want to emphasize that as a student, the two most important things for you are your commitment to your schoolwork and your commitment to your physical and emotional safety. But it's not okay to add an activity to your plate that sacrifices your schoolwork time or your self-care time. And let's talk about adding activities to our plate for a second. Let's talk about saying yes or saying no. I have a couple of questions that I want you to be able to ask yourself before you say yes or no to a commitment or project or agreeing to speak on a panel or being on a committee or whatever it is that's coming up in your college life. I want you to ask yourself these questions. How much of a time commitment is this task? You know, is this an hour once a month? Is this an hour once a week? Is this, you know, a full day one time and that's it? What is this going to look like? Because then you can start to think, you know, do I have an extra hour once a week to commit to this project? 
And this absolutely includes the time you spend working on these projects outside of specific meeting times. It includes the time you spend responding to emails or coordinating or event planning or whatever comes along with this task or this ask that you've been asked to commit to. And I want you to take it seriously. If someone says that this is going to take 10 hours a month, that's 10 hours a month potentially that you need to be able to plan for and find places to work into your schedule. I also want you to ask yourself how much of an emotional time commitment is this going to be? You know, how much time are you going to spend thinking about reflecting on this project or this task outside of the physical time commitment you've been presented with? And something that I really want to bring up, but I don't want to personally speak to these experiences because they're not my lived experiences, is a lot of times students of color, black students, indigenous students, and other students of color, and students with disabilities, students with LGBTQ plus identities, are asked to participate in activities and tasks related to those identities. You know, maybe a black student is asked to speak on a panel or a student with disabilities is asked to participate in a focus group. And that is fine if that is something you have the physical time to commit to, but I also want you to be aware of the emotional commitment that that takes to, you know, use those extra spoons of yours to think about and reflect on and put words to, you know, potentially trauma that you face related to your identities or frustrations that you have and how much it can be draining to reflect on past troubles or past trauma or future worries or future anxieties. That takes a lot of emotional energy. The final thing I want you to ask yourself is, outside of the physical or emotional time commitments, is this something you genuinely want to do? Or is this something you maybe feel like you should do for the good of your resume? Is this something that you're feeling pressured into doing, positive pressure or negative pressure by the people around you? Is this something you want to genuinely do because you're interested and engaged in the topic? And when you're asking yourself these three questions or these sets of questions, you know, how much of a physical time commitment is this? How much of an emotional time commitment is this? Do I genuinely want to do this? Whether or not you answer yes or no to those questions isn't necessarily me telling you that if you say you don't have the physical time to commit to it or you're not genuinely interested in it, that you shouldn't do it because sometimes there are things that you know we don't really want to do that we do anyway. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing inherently, but I'm asking you to reflect and I'm asking you to think about it rather than mindlessly saying yes or mindlessly saying no. When it comes to saying no, I want to be clear that the word no is a complete sentence. And I feel like we as college students, we as Americans, we as human people have been socially conditioned to believe that saying no means that we're bad or means that we've failed or means that we've let someone down. This is not the case. And there are plenty of, you know, respectful ways to decline an offer. You know, you can say that you don't have the time right now. You can say that you can't commit to doing something without a compensation. You can say that it sounds really interesting. You'd like to be kept in the loop, but you just don't have the time to commit to being actively involved. But if none of those are true and you just don't want to, it is totally okay to say no. You don't owe anyone an explanation and you don't owe anyone that time if that time is not something that you have to give. And 
I want to address FOMO for just a moment here because there are so many cool things that are happening on college campuses and there are so many things that we as college students hear about and we genuinely want to jump in feet first. We want to be involved. We think this sounds amazing. We think this would be an amazing opportunity for personal growth, professional growth, to learn more about a topic that we're excited about. You can absolutely love the idea of being involved with something and yet know in your heart that you do not have the physical or the emotional time to commit to being involved. And that does not mean that you have failed at all. There's also the side of it where, you know, maybe a favorite professor or a dear friend asks you to participate in something and you feel obligated to say yes. Maybe you even genuinely might be interested in participating, but you feel obligated to say yes, even though you don't have the physical or the emotional time to commit to it. It is okay to say no. Just because you feel obligated to say yes does not mean that you have to say yes. Because like I said before, your number one priorities as a college student are not to please other people. They are to commit to your coursework and whatever it takes to get you the degree that you signed up to get and your commitment to your physical and emotional safety. Now, I've talked about a lot of very abstract concepts, and I realize that for some people, if you came into this episode expecting like a bullet-pointed list of how to achieve work-life balance, that's not what you're going to get today, and I'm really sorry about that if that's what you need or want at this time, but my goal with this episode is to present you with a whole bunch of things to think about so that not only can you think about your work-life balance in this moment, but you can apply these questions and this information to future situations in which you might be feeling like you don't have great work-life balance. This is one of those teach Amanda Fish metaphorical moments where I'm trying to give you the tools that you need rather than just giving you a checklist. Before I wrap it up and let you go today, I do also want to address the fact that no matter how much you reflect on your schedule, reflect on your physical and emotional time commitments, no matter how much that you plan your schedule out, you are not going to have the perfect balance of on time and off time and downtime and work time all the time. You will have weeks where you feel crazy busy and you will have weeks that feel very slow. This is just kind of the reality of college and how unusually flexible and transient college life can be. And honestly, sometimes this is also a reality of life. Some weeks life is absolutely crazy and some weeks life is relaxed and calm. The goal of work-life balance and the goal of this episode isn't to never be busy and it isn't to completely avoid those crazy, crazy busy moments. But the goal is to find that middle ground where most of the time, You are pleasantly and comfortably busy, and you're pleasantly and comfortably okay with your workload. You know, your goal is to have enough downtime to re-energize and refuel and reconnect with yourself, but also have enough on your plate that you're really feeling energy and purpose and passion around the things that you're passionate about. That is the goal of work-life balance. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, definitely leave me a comment down below. Talk to me about your work-life balance right now. Give it a number on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being awful and 10 being amazing. Like, how is your work-life balance these days? Don't forget to go subscribe to me on YouTube if that's where you're listening to me. 
subscribe on whatever podcast platform you love to listen on and leave me a five-star review and a rating if you're able. That would mean the world to me. I love seeing those and seeing what you guys are getting out of these episodes. Definitely go ahead and follow me on Instagram. I am at Feed That Nation and go check out my blog, feedthatnation.com. Before I let you go, of course, I'm going to be giving you my food, my follow, and my fun for the week. My food this week is, I feel like I bring this up at least once a month, but I have absolutely been loving fried rice lately. I have my YouTube video that I will link below talking about how I make my fried rice, and I don't pretend this is an authentic recipe whatsoever, but this is just honestly one of the simplest and most fun meals that my husband and I make together. And it turns out good pretty much no matter what we put into it or how we do it. And I would totally recommend you guys add fried rice or another similar recipe to your repertoire. My follow this week is an obstetrician and gynecologist that I've been following on Instagram lately. Her name is Wendy. She is at Dr. Everywoman, I believe. I will link her below. And she is just such a fun font of knowledge on all things OBGYN related. And I love just kind of following her, seeing her stories, seeing her goofiness, and I just feel like I follow so many OBGYNs and other health professionals on Instagram because I'm really loving the information I'm getting from them. My fun this week is my husband and I have started to clear out our garden. You guys know that we moved last fall, and we moved kind of right at the end of gardening season in Minnesota, and so we didn't really get a chance to figure out, you know, what all is actually planted in the different garden beds around the house. And so we're starting to clear out the dead stuff and figure out, you know, what do we want to remove? Where do we want to plant things? And we're just kind of seeing what's popping up. And there's so many interesting plants just kind of popping up. And we have no idea what they are. And we're really excited to see where that goes. And I think that's really fun. And I would encourage you, if you have any sort of access to gardening go for it this spring. I absolutely love gardening. You guys know how much I've been involved with community gardening in the past. It is truly one of the things that just lights up my life, and I really want you guys to find some of that joy too. Until next time, my name is Natalie Nation, and you're listening to Feed That Nation. Have a great day, and I'll see you soon.